I'll ask that you take your Bibles once more and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We will be turning our attention towards the season and the coming of Jesus in the weeks ahead, but we'll have this one message from Philippians before we step away from it for a short time. We are nearly to the end of the letter and ready to look at something new. You can be praying as I think through what we might look at next. But for this morning, I'd like to read the same passage that we read last week, albeit we'll focus on something different in it this week. So read with me Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. 2 through 9. Paul writes, I implore Euodia and I implore Sintaish to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. That's as far as we'll go uh, today. Um, specifically this morning, we will be looking at verse 5. And I don't think that it will be a long and labored message. But verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, if you have a different translation, you might see the word moderation there or reasonableness. I would make the case that it is gentleness. I think that fits best with Paul's letters uh, throughout the New Testament. But different translations do different things with this word. It is a way of treating others, and that's why it's supposed to be visible to others. And I think gentleness fits, and so that's the word that I'll be using when I talk about it today. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Um, gentleness, it should be said, is not weakness. Is not weakness. There are uh, certainly circumstances in life where someone handles something very delicately because they are really left with no other way to handle it. They don't have the strength to do anything differently. Um, if you've uh, ever seen a child uh, try to carry the jug of milk from the fridge to the counter for the first time, and, and you think, I don't know if it's going to make it there, and it's, wob you know, it's wobbling, and you know... Uh, there's, there's a limitation of strength on display, but gentleness is not, is not that. Gentleness is not weakness, and that should be said. 
um, someone who is simply insufficiently strong and is fragile and cannot muster a strong response to anything, that person is not necessarily gentle. Uh, gentleness is about more than that. Um, in fact, I have heard gentleness described as strength under control. Strength under control. Someone who is too weak or too fragile to do any harm does not need to be warned about gentleness because they can't do any harm. But someone who perhaps does not realize the damage that they might do to something simply by casually handling something needs to be warned about gentleness. They need to be told, hey, you should be careful. You should be gentle. So gentleness is for those who either possess or who might possess strength. And it is a call to control that strength with a certain awareness. Now, in the Bible, in Galatians, gentleness is identified as one of the characteristics that comes from God. We're told that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning when the Spirit of God works in a Christian person's life, one of the attributes that comes out of that person's life, one of the fruit that blossoms from the work of God is gentleness. Now, there are other attributes listed there, but gentleness is among them. Now, if we say that gentleness is from God, we should recognize that there is a, a worldly gentleness. Such a thing exists. There is a worldly call to gentleness. Um, and that makes sense. Because again, gentleness is a call to those with strength that they don't do damage. So we live in a world where there's a lot of damage done, um, both with intention and without intention. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there is a general worldly call to, hey, let's be careful. Hey, let's be cautious. Hey, let's be gentle. Which begs the question, if there exists a worldly understanding of gentleness, what is the earmark of the gentleness that comes from God? Is it merely more gentleness? Is it a different kind of gentleness? I think that the Holy Spirit strengthens us to be gentle when we would not. I think that's what comes from God. I think the divine element of this that begins to take shape in a believer's life as they try to walk by faith in God is the recognition and the understanding that gentleness should be exercised far more than we would otherwise exercise it. More than that, it's the leadership of God's spirit of how to exercise gentleness in these situations. So that's how I would define gentleness as a fruit of the spirit, both a recognition of when we should be gentle and a leadership of what that gentleness might look like in a particular situation. Because the world understands that we should be gentle and cautious and careful but not as often as it should, not in all the situations that it should, and not in the course of action that God would call us to.
I believe that gentleness is perhaps at its, at its most basic level a call to see two things. Two things. The value and the vulnerability of others. The value and the vulnerability of others. Um, when I speak to the value and the vulnerability of others, let me put some examples around it. We understand that the child who's carrying the gallon of milk for the first time from the fridge to the countertop, we understand the vulnerability of that. They could drop it. <laughs> but we also understand the value of it, meaning it's, it would not be the end of the world. So we let the child do it. We watch them struggle. We let them understand. You would not, I hope, let the same child carry something just as vulnerable, but with far more value casually around the house. In other words, you would not let a child who can barely carry the gallon of milk carry a baby around the house. I mean, not without concern. You wouldn't, because the, we understand the vulnerability of both, but the value of one is far superior to the other. So the call to gentleness is a call to recognize, hey, let's be careful. I remember from my childhood, on more than one occasion, my dad you know, turning around and seeing me or my brother doing something and just, you know, I can still hear my dad's voice saying, be careful, you know. <laughs> what you have there is, is either more valuable or more dangerous than you realize. There's a vulnerability here or there's a great value here that we can't dismiss. What is the value of a human being? And we could say a lot of things to answer that question. Some people tie up their value in how well they do in a sport. Some people will tie up their value in how much money they have. In fact, in a very business methodical way, when someone dies, someone else must go through the exercise of what is the value of all of this person's possessions that they've left behind. It must be determined so it can be divvied up. But I hope as believers, we would have a more godly answer for the value of a human life. What establishes the value of human life? Well, God does at creation when we read that we were created in the image of God. Um, we were created to bear the image, to bear the likeness of an eternal, righteous, holy God. We have intrinsic value as human beings. And we might also define our value as human beings in one other way. We might measure our value by the lengths to which God has gone to save us from destruction. If something is going to be destroyed, we might ask, well, look, what would it cost to turn this around? What would it cost? You know, you ever do that with a vehicle? You ever do that with a vehicle? A vehicle that's breaking down and falling apart. And, you know, you take it into the shop and you're like, hey, it's, it's doing this and this and this and this. And they sit down and they say, okay, here's all the things on that. You ever get that piece of paper and it's like, could, could all of these things be wrong at the same time? But, you know, here are all the things that are wrong. And sometimes you ask that question, you know, if, even if I fix all these things, and they, maybe they'll say, no, this is not worth it. It's just gonna, or maybe they say, yeah, look, if you fix all these things, 
you know, we could get this going again. And then they give you the, the bad news, right? <laughs> they tell you, here's the problem. You know, it's not that we can't fix it, but here's what the cost will look like. And then you're left with an existential question, aren't you? Uh, is, is the existence of this vehicle in my life worth that bill that I just saw rolled up? And you're doing, you're doing the analysis, right? The value analysis of this. And to some extent, you might say the value of that vehicle is the amount of money you're willing to put into it. <laughs> because if you don't do it, somebody else is going to you know, take it to, the, to the, the recycling center and scrap it for whatever they can get. The value, you are describing the value. If you're willing to spend $6,000, that's how much it's worth to you. <laughs> it's not worth that to anybody else. But if you want to spend the six grand, you've established the value of the vehicle in your own eyes. There are a lot of people who don't have very much value in the eyes of the world. They're not worth very much. They're not worth their time. They're not worth their energy. They're not worth their consideration. The bare minimum is done to meet societal obligations for them. But what is the value that Jesus has paid? He's, he's given his life. God has given his only son. So, when we talk about gentleness, let's not miss the value analysis here. When we're speaking of people, we're talking about something precious. Not precious because you just think that someone is the greatest person in the world or because you know, you're able to see past all their flaws, but we're talking about a value that has been divinely established. And if God says that someone is worth something precious, then that person is worth something precious. So when we talk about gentleness, we're talking about something serious. When we are not gentle as we should be, we are in some ways assigning a lower value to a person than what God himself has assigned. We're saying this person is not worth caution or consideration. This person is not worth care or a high valuation. Now, when I was a kid, um, I collected baseball cards, basketball cards, football cards. They don't do much of that anymore. It's pretty expensive to do, unfortunately, anymore. When I was a kid, it was pretty cheap. You know, I'd beg my mom at the grocery store, and she'd spend a quarter, and I'd get a pack of baseball cards or whatever it was. It wasn't, it wasn't, and gum, Nathan said. That's right, and gum. Um, um, you know, and, and, you know, children would take those baseball cards. They keep the ones they like and the other ones. What did they do with them? You remember what they do? What did you say? They'd trade them. They'd, what did you say, Steve? Bicycles. That's right. You'd tape them to your bicycles and, and uh, the spokes would go and it sound like you're on a motorcycle. That's how old Steve and I are. That's right. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people I've said, man, when I was a kid, I had all these cards. And they say, I did too. And you know, I just threw those things away or I put them in my bike. And I'm not like, I had this card and I had this card and they're so valuable now. But a kid, you know, no idea was, you know, no forethought into what it could be. They assigned a value and the value was, yeah, this thing might make a cool sound when I ride my bike. That's it, you know. Because kids aren't very good at, at valuing things. 
But the sad reality is many of us aren't very good at valuing things either. And, and sometimes when it comes to people, we treat people, whether we think they're a good person or a bad person, as carelessly as a kid might treat a, a baseball card growing up when I did. You know, and that's not good. That's not okay. The call here is let your gentleness be known to all men. Now, valuation is one thing, but vulnerability is the other. And I would say there are two main categories of vulnerability that we have to think about when we think of other people. One is temptation to sin. We are all sinners. And if we believe that sin is as destructive to our lives and to the lives of people around us as God's word warns us that it is, then the reality that any of us might be tempted to sin ought to scare the living daylights out of us. Not because there's no forgiveness, not because it's the end of the world, but because there is a practical, destructive element to sin when it shows up in our lives. It comes with consequence, not merely for us, but for those around us. There's collateral damage in our sin. When we talk about value, we can establish that. When we talk about vulnerability, it should at least begin with the reality that we are more susceptible to sin than we realize. And we ought to be gentle with people. We ought to be cautious. We ought to be careful. And we ought to consider that this person's life is not nearly as far away from the practical consequences of destructive sin as I might imagine that it is. And I do not want to be a contributing factor to the downfall and destruction of elements of a person's life because they surrendered to temptation and sin. That's a major vulnerability. The other vulnerability is general weakness. And this comes merely by the fact that we are aware of evil. We are aware of difficulty. We are aware of our own exposure. You ever talk to somebody about something and for you, you're just having a conversation, but come to find out later on, they actually took what you said and they got really nervous or really scared or really alarmed. They suddenly felt exposed because of what you were talking about. They suddenly felt vulnerable in, a, in something they hadn't thought about in the past. This is a biblical idea. Do you know, when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, the very first thing they recognized is, wait a minute, we are exposed. Part of knowing evil, of understanding evil, is dealing with the fear and insecurity that we might experience the evil of others. You know, we read in Genesis 3.21 that after God had properly corrected Adam and Eve, that after he had pronounced judgment on them, it says this, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. He covered their exposure. When we think about the weakness of people around us, we need to understand in our conversations, in our actions, people are weaker and more vulnerable and feel more exposed than we realize. We may make a, a comment that to us is casual, and I'm guilty of this as much or more than most. And someone else, because of their own insecurities, might hear something entirely different. 
might feel something far beyond what we intended. We might say something that is true. But because of the way in which we said it, we leave them with the conclusion that is very different from what we ever intended them to experience. We are vulnerable more than we want to admit. And I've heard people say, you know, look, I don't want to walk around on eggshells. I don't see any point in beating around the bush here. But ask yourself this. What is appropriate in our interactions and dealings with people, considering the value and the vulnerability of an individual's life? What is appropriate? Well, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Jesus here. Jesus was a gentle man. Uh, I'll give you three passages, one from the New Testament, two from the Old Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus describes himself this way. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He is self-defined as gentle and lowly. He is not the aggressor with the sinner or with the person. He is gentle and lowly. He's a savior. In Isaiah 42, the first three verses, when Jesus is prophesied about. There will be a Messiah. He's coming. Listen to what it says. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. The idea here, a bruised reed, you know, a reed in the, in, that is, uh, that's just kind of toppled over and barely hanging on. He won't snap it in half. Uh, uh, a smoking flax, you know, a candle that is almost extinguished. He's not going to just snuff it out. He won't deal harshly and cruelly with people. He will be gentle towards those who are bruised, towards those who are failing. And then one more from the Old Testament. In Psalm 23, we read, The Lord is my shepherd. Now, we just sang up here the Hallelujah Chorus. And when I think of the Hallelujah Chorus, my mind goes to the part where there's this rhythmic, authoritative, in the choir book, it's this little F and another F, which means sing this as loud as you can. And the words that I think of are, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. The word Lord is not a name for God. It's a title. And the Holy Course does a good job of hammering that home. King of kings, Lord of lords. And the psalmist says, the king is actually a shepherd to me. You know what a shepherd does? A shepherd takes care of little lambs. When they're wounded, puts it on his back and walks. When they're nursing, makes sure that they're taken care of. When they wander, goes and brings them back. A shepherd is not an authoritarian position. <laughs> to say the Lord, the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is actually my shepherd who loves me 
and who leads me and who guides me and who speaks to me is saying something magnificent about the great God of heaven. It is saying God is actually very gentle to me. He doesn't have to be. But he is actually very, as if I were a lamb. He tolerates me and sustains me. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. We won't read all of John 3, but I want to give you two pictures of Jesus in his gentleness. And we'll close. John 3, I'm just going to read the, the opening verses. We read, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And let's just pause right there and consider a few things. Number one, this man Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, I don't know how much you recall from the Gospels, but the Pharisees were generally not allied with Jesus in his coming. They are key figures antagonizing him in the Gospels. They plead with Pilate to see Jesus crucified. They align themselves with the established priesthood to see Jesus killed. And we find out that Jesus is visited by a Pharisee. Now, for those of you uncertain what a Pharisee was, a Pharisee was a legal expert. A Pharisee was someone who had been approved by society and culture to render judgments and verdicts on what was acceptable and unacceptable, and their verdicts were binding, which is why it also says in verse 1, the second thing we might observe, it, it identifies Nicodemus as a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He is not merely a religious figurehead, he has real power. He has real authority. I want you to imagine for a second being Jesus, tough to do, knowing that you are king of kings and lord of lords and being questioned by a supposed ruler of the Jews, your own people. And we might forgive the Lord if he did not have the tolerance for such a thing. Notice also that this Pharisee, this ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus by night, says, says in verse 2. Why? Because, again, the Pharisees were antagonistic, and he doesn't want to be seen asking Jesus these questions. He is secretly coming to Jesus. He is quietly coming to Jesus. Not in broad daylight, not where the people or the other Pharisees might question, what are you doing taking this man from Nazareth seriously? But quietly, as if he were ashamed by his curiosity, as if the opinion which he expresses in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, might get him into public trouble. So he comes to Jesus by night and he asks him this vague question on approach. We know that you're a teacher from God, but the implied question is, what exactly are you doing here? 
No one does miracles apart from God. I certainly can't do them. What are you doing here? Is the idea. And Jesus is very gentle with Nicodemus. What might you have said? Why don't you come and you ask me with all your friends tomorrow morning and I'll tell you. You know. <laughs> Why are you here in the middle of the night, man? <laughs> Do you really think that I am a teacher from God? Because it doesn't seem that way from you and all of your buddies. You're a ruler. Why don't you tell me? Jesus had every human right to be offended by this. How does he respond? Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this leads Nicodemus to the question, what does it mean to be born again? How, can I be born again when I'm old? Can I go back into my mother's womb? He's, he is seeking and Jesus is leading. And this leads to one of the most profound exchanges this early in the ministry of Jesus Christ where he tells Nicodemus, about salvation and about what the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish and about the, the, the implications of his coming crucifixion. We get the plan of God unfolded for us in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's in this conversation. We get the explanation for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We get an explanation of what Jesus is wrestling with, with light and darkness. All those who, who love God come to the light, but those who don't come to the light, they don't come because their deeds are evil. I mean, we get this massive revelation of Jesus privately to this man, Nicodemus. And I'm not sure Jesus should have given him the time of day. But he was gentle. Jesus is very concerned with the man, Nicodemus, and not all of the extenuating circumstances. He says in verse 10, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? <laughs> and then he explains. Do you know, Nicodemus is one of the two people who come forward after the crucifixion of Jesus to publicly request the body from Pilate and to take down the body from the cross. Here's a guy who was so afraid to say anything positive about Jesus, to even talk to him in broad daylight. But he has been transformed. And now, during the most dangerous time to be a disciple, while the 12 disciples, the 11 of which remain, are locking themselves in an upper room, afraid that they are going to be crucified next, while Jesus' body is literally on the cross as a reminder to the Roman rule and the Jewish rule of what Jesus is, Nicodemus comes forward publicly and basically says, I don't care what the consequences are. I'm here for the body. Jesus was gentle with him. And it's not lost on me that Nicodemus was gentle with the body of the Lord. But that was years later. And then in the next chapter, John 4, um, 
It says, verse 5, So he came to a city of Samaria, Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Here we have a woman who had no cultural significance in terms of theology, what she might think. And Jesus is going to be discussing deep theology with her. She's of Samaria, which is a corrupt people, both in their worship and in their mixture with Israel. In verse 18, we come to find that she is a sinner in the vein of she's previously had five husbands, but that aside, she's living with someone now in sin who she's not married to. And her beliefs are offensive, which are defined in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Being a Samaritan and having a corrupt religion, she doesn't believe in Israel's Old Testament. So she's a woman, she's of Samaria, she's living in sin, and she has beliefs that are offensive and frankly portrayed that way. This is what you say, but this is what we've been told. How does Jesus treat this woman? Gently. Gently. He talks with her. He reasons with her. He pleads with her. He says, lady, if you knew what I could give you, then you would ask of me and you would be so satisfied you would never ask for these things again. When she says her offensive thing about, hey, you Jews say this, but we believe this. He says, I'm telling you, the hour is coming when those who worship God will worship Him in spirit and truth. He's not baited into that. He is concerned for this woman's soul. When, when, when she asks a question, he says, go and get your husband and I'll talk to you about this. And she says, oh, I'm not married. He said, I know, I know. This is your situation. And he tells her. He confronts sin, but he loves the sinner. He opposes the heir the error that she's making. He doesn't oppose the person. He's gentle with her. Why? Why? Because she's valuable. Because she's vulnerable. And because Jesus' gentleness is from the Lord. It's from God. It's divine. I want to ask you as we close a few questions. Is gentleness on display in your life? I'll read to you again the verse from Philippians. Let your gentleness be known to all men. I don't know what you want people to know about you. Do you want them to know that you were great at this or great at that? Do you want them to know that you were a good husband or father, good son, good brother? Or the feminine side of all those relationships? What do you want people to know of you? Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Have a gentleness that is so uniquely divine.
that when people look at you, they don't see a weakling, they see strength under control. Someone who is cautious. Someone who knows the value of a human life. Someone who understands the vulnerability of a human soul. When you look at someone to whom you might be rude or dismissive or rough with, someone who deserves it, do you see the creation of God made in His own image? Or do you only see the offense or the situation? The fact that your food was not delivered as promised. The, the fact that they've said something wrong or hateful. The, their obvious intentions. What do you see? Do you see the value of the person? Is your heart moved to cover them from sin and danger and harm? As God covered Adam and Eve. Do you see the exposure that perhaps they themselves don't even see? Are you moved to cover that with truth, with grace? Or are you just there to point it out how wrecked things are, how wrong things are, how dumb things are? The reminder from Paul is, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Lest there be any doubt, you are wholly exposed before the Lord, and He is coming. You will give an account to Him. You are laid bare before Him. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Why? Jesus is coming. The Lord is at hand. Um, oftentimes, I think we fail at evangelism and at sharing the gospel with people simply because we have not gotten our theology right about this person before we open our mouths to speak. And so when we speak, the words come out confused or the words come out rushed or the words come out confrontational. But if our theology is right, if our mind is set, I care about this person then the compassion and the gentleness of that will come forward in the conversation. Nobody gets saved, at least it doesn't seem like it, through machine gun, bang, 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 bang. But people are compelled when someone cares for them, when there is compassion, when there is gentleness, when there's concern about the value and the vulnerability that they're exposed to. I hope that we will see the people around us as we should. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Father, I'm glad to be a part of a people that um, are gentle. Not to give us a pass when we are rude or unkind or unloving. But in my life and in the lives of others, I see the gentleness of your people. I thank you for that. It doesn't come from us. I ask for your forgiveness when we are rude or unkind. For a course correction in our life that you will transform the way that we see other people in the world around us. Father, we need your mercy. We deserve your judgment. We need your mercy. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who these things are very strange to and, and they've heard a lot about Jesus and they've heard a lot about 
sin for whatever that is, and they, they hear something to aspire to, but they are uncertain. Father, I pray that you'll give them faithfulness to seek clarity, not in Google, but in conversation with your people. And when we have the chance to speak of you, help us not to neglect it, not to turn people away because they come to us at night or because they're corrupt, because they're different, because they're not like us, but that we with gentleness will speak the truth in love as your son has in the word. Thank you for the example of Jesus. He is a never-ending lesson, a never-ending source of wisdom. It's in his name that I pray, amen.